Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, greetings from sunny Florida. I'm here again for Shabbos because I have to do a talk at Scotland Residence in Williams Island. So here I'm in Williams Island. This is a richy, rich, plushy, plush situation where I'm looking on a hot day and the sound you hear behind me is the air conditioning. So, oh my goodness, in Baltimore, it must be below zero. But down here, it's the opposite. And it is a fancy view over here. So in the words of a famous rabbi of old, I'm sitting on the dock all day watching the tides roll away, baby. But this week's parsha is Mishpatim. And again, I don't have any books in front, but you don't need it. Mishpatim is interesting in many respects. But what's the first thing you jump into? Slavery. Avery. Talk about Jewish slavery. I thought the Jews were taken out of Egypt to be free. That's, that's in the movie. Not taken out of Egypt to be free. You're taken out of Egypt to switch masters. From A to B, from Pharaoh to God. That's what it says. Avodai Haim. But that's all cliches. What do we see, at least I think, in this parsha and these parshas in general? You know the Torah is true because they talk about the unchanging nature of the human personality. And by that I mean the following. How do you become a Hebrew slave? Do you know that rules? Evid every, not every kind, Evid every. It's got to be for non-payment of, uh, of, of, of uh, money well. If you get in like in a debtor situation over your head, or if you steal money or something like that and the court finds you guilty you got to pay a lot of money and you don't have that kind of money if you have the money you pay it out of your bank account but if you don't have the kind of money at a certain point the court says well then you go into involuntary servitude the value of your labor is then given to the creditor and in plain english you got to work it off now that's okay with me but realize what we're talking about. There's no Kenyan a goof with an every. You don't own him, but you own the right to his mycea dime. You own the right to his labor. So, for example, somebody borrowed or stole, let's say for argument's sake, $50,000. He can work it off over the course of six years. $50,000 shouldn't be too hard. But if the creditor is stupid enough to lend somebody $10 million, there is no way you're going to be able to pay that off in six years of labor. Tough luck. There's a maximum of six years, it says in this week's parsha, as we all know. Right? That there's a limit. Let's say for, again, arguments say you can work off a quarter of that amount. So you work off $250,000 out of the million that you owe. When six years is up, that's it. The creditor is stuck. He's only going to get two fifty dollars because what about the fact that the guy still owes you a lot of money? Too bad. You can't expect the guy to pay more. So that if you're a lender in the old days, you take that into account. You say, here I am lending somebody this kind of money, and let's say it's not secured or whatever, you know, or an investment, whatever it was. Uh, I'm not going to get more than six years worth of work out of this guy. And if he's older, there are many rules that let you off before the six years. And it's also true. Who wants a Jew doing involuntary servitude for them? You know, the guy's going to uh, come late and uh, claim that his arm hurts 
and he's going to win extra food, and the Rambam says you got to give him all your, you know, special treatment, and he gets to bed before you do. By the time it's over, any normal creditor is going to say like this, forget it, I'm just writing the money off. I don't want this schnook working for me for the next six years and complaining all the time that he's not being treated properly. And so the whole institution of the Evidivri comes out like kind of funny. But it does bring out something very interesting to my mind, and that is, as I said before, human nature doesn't change. And let me explain what I mean. When Yisro shows up in last week's Parsha, he tells Moshe, you don't have your act together because there's so many cases and you can't judge them all yourself. Instead, you have to support, set up a judiciary, a magistracy. Uh, what kind of cases could they have over there? I mean, how could you even have every, every Jew left Egypt, we're told, Ungestop Medgelt, they had uh, millions of dollars, you know, Clay Chesev, Clay Saab, Smolos, and all this sort of thing. How do you end up with uh, you know, uh, problems that people now can't pay debts. And, uh, I mean, the guy was loaded. But the answer, of course, is consider well. Suppose you gave today everybody in the United States a million dollars, which is probably what the next Democratic president will do. Every give one million dollars to everybody. What will happen at the end of 12 months? Most of the people who have the money no longer will have it. The clever people, the few clever people will have it. They'll sell you swampland in Florida. They'll convince you to purchase this. They'll say, like we do nowadays in our modern consumerist culture, oh, I have a new product you can't live without, even though you never heard about it two minutes ago. And by the time it's over, the fool and the money will be uh, easily parted, as the expression goes. And the few will have the money, and the many will no longer have the money. This is the nature of the human beast. This is how it goes. Um, why can't you legislate? You can't legislate against that. People don't change. When the Torah talks about, right after they leave Egypt, right after they left Egypt, right after Har Sinai, immediately Hashem is saying, well, you're going to Why will there be an Evidivri? Because the guy won't be able to pay his... How come he doesn't have money to pay his debts? The guy's loaded. No, he won't be loaded soon. Could be by the time Har Sinai came in, that's seven weeks after of Egypt, probably half the fools lost their money already by investing in, in, in uh, you know, new camel situation or something like that, or uh, this, this uh, grand plan to, uh, to set up a uh, housing development in the middle of the Sinai Desert. Who knows what they did, because the clever people out there are always going to be clever, and the less clever people are going to be less clever. That's why the Torah has these very interesting institutions, like Yeovil, for example. Uh, think for a minute. There's real estate out there. Now, none of this happens in Baltimore, of course, but I'm talking about other towns. <laughs> there's real estate out there um, somebody wants your house they're going to get your house he said no they're not I'm not going to sell it to them by the time they're done the clever people most of the time will get the house that they want and what will happen to the other person they'll lose their land same thing is true thousands of years ago in the time of the Torah the farmers all have farms but by the time it's over the clever will get their land and there's nothing you can do to stop it except press a reset button every 50 years you understand? That's a frank admission on the part of the Torah that human character won't change. But we do not want a situation in which all the Jewish people are landless and a tiny handful of clever individuals own all the land. For example, such as the situation in the state of Israel today where they say 10 families own the whole economy. So the Torah doesn't want that. But you can't stop that unless God changes the human nature, which he doesn't do. And so given that, the only thing you can do is say every 50 years we'll just reset it and everybody gets their land back. But before too long, the same situation will prevail once again, that the clever people will get the land from the unclever people. The only thing is, since the clever people know that in 50 years is a reset button, that will perhaps modify the avarice. But I doubt it. From all this you see, the Torah speaks in a very frank 
way. It's not some la-di-da business in which they portray an ideal world and a paradise, even though theoretically the Jews left Egypt, they're all loaded, they heard Harsinai, they heard the Ten Commandments, everything should be going great. Not true. People are people. And you're going to find cases in which people find, you know, uh, end up losing all their money. How can a person have a fortune and lose the money? It happens every day. It happens every day. These are the arguments you see for the truth of the Torah. You can't present, well, you can, but you can't present good philosophical arguments or historical arguments, but you can present human being arguments, psychological arguments. Because in the other religions, they speak in very uh, glossy ways, in very generalized fashion. The Torah gets down to the nitty-gritty, and they know people, and they certainly know the Jews, and they know there's going to be such a thing as an evidivery. But I'll say it again. Theoretically, they're all kind of halachas that govern the evidivery. But in reality, I don't believe it worked. And the proof that I'm right is in this week's Haftorah. Because whoever set the Haftorah up, take a look at it. It's from Yirmiyo. And what does it say over there? In the time of King Sikio, in time when the prophet Jeremiah, um, somebody made a speech and screamed at everybody for holding on to the Hebrew slaves beyond the time that they were supposed to do. And the reason they do this is because I told you the guy didn't really work it out over six years. And as a result, they freed all their slaves. They did the right thing. But what happened was in a short time, they re-enslaved them. Look at the Haftorah today and you'll see it. They re-enslaved them. Why did they re-enslave them? The economy couldn't work without the slave labor, without the involuntary servitude. What kind of economy is that? You know what that shows you? To carry out a successful emancipation requires a great deal of thought you can't just do it because you heard a Musa schmooze. To organize a society in which all of a sudden the slaves are freed, but the economy keeps rolling along, and that the former masters are able to still be productive and make the engines of the society work, is very tricky and very difficult situation. It reminds me of the problem of land reform. Everybody always says a few people own all the land, which is usually the way it is around the world, and the peasantry and the public doesn't own the land. They're you know paying rent to the other people. Fine. But you look throughout history, whenever they try to do a successful land reform, it usually gets all screwed up. Uh, it, it has uh, all kinds of unintended social and economic consequences. Frankly, that's why the Shah of Iran fell from power, and uh, you have the present group with nuts in there, uh, because of the misconceived land reform. To my knowledge, the only successful land reform was MacArthur after the Second World War, when he got a Jewish uh, expert from Columbia University, not a from guy, who spent his whole life studying the Wolf Legensky, spending the whole uh, ups and downs of the land reform. I'm simply saying when you emancipate peasants, you can't say, oh, I heard a speech and I'm just going to do it. Within a short time, the masters will re-enslave the, the slaves. Now, it was wrong to do. It was a big avera. But what are you supposed to do? An example that comes to my mind of a successful emancipation, this could sound funny, I remember from the letter of Aristeas. Look at this. I'm sitting here in Aventura in the middle of a heat wave and we're talking about Aristeas. Aristeas uh, to Philocrates, the famous book from the Greek times, uh, it's part of what they call the Pseudepigrapha, which is a text about Jewish history written 2,000 years ago or more, in which there's described the Targum Shivim, the writing of the Septuagint. It's a very different version of the story we hear in the Gemara. It's a very positive version. But here's the point I want to bring out. This is in the time of the 200s BCE. And when Alexander Great died, he left it to his generals to fight it out, and one of them was Ptolemy. And Ptolemy took over Egypt, and founded an empire for a couple hundred years. Ptolemy I, Ptolemy II, Ptolemy III, and so forth. And Ptolemy I was a real son of a gun, and one of the things he did is he attacked Jerusalem. We know this from Josephus and other sources. And he captured the city and carried off 100,000 Jews as slaves back to Egypt. No, it's a reenactment. There's been two 
times the Jews have been slaves in Egypt. One at the time of the Bible, one at the time of Ptolemy I. So you had 100,000 Jews working the salt mines and who knows what in Egypt. It's around the year 310, 300, 290 B.C., 280 B.C. Like it was horrible. And then Ptolemy I died and his son Ptolemy II took over. He's the one who had the Bible translated into Greek. And the letter of Aristides tells us that Ptolemy II, who was a very smart economist and was thinking of his own personal gain, he said, you know, i got 100,000 Jews here working... Uh, heavy physical labor in the salt mines. That's a waste of a Jew. He said, they are slaves of mine, but there's a waste of a Jew. And so it's a smarter idea to what I'm going to do is I'm going to emancipate all these people, let them go into business, and they'll build the economy 10 times over. I'll get a lot more of them than they do with just working in the fields as agricultural field ends and the salt mines and all the rest of it. So out of these non-altruistic purposes, he resolved to liberate, uh, to emancipate all the surviving slaves in his time. And he did do so. But how did he do it? He calculated how much was a fair amount to pay for each owner with a profit. He bought each and every one of these slaves. Think about what I'm saying. He bought each and every one of these slaves from the owner at a fair price, more than fair price, so there was no complaints about it. And then having done it that way, he said to the Jews, okay, go do your thing. Obviously, being Jewish, this guy set up a store, that guy set up a business. Before you know it, within a few years, the Jews controlled the harbor at Alexandria. They brought in a ton of money for the Ptolemaic Empire, where a major source of revenue and income for the Egyptians for a couple of centuries. You can look it up. All I'm trying to say is that the issues the Torah raises are very complicated. The Torah tries to deal with them in a very realistic manner, but uh, you need to apply these mitzvahs in the proper spirit. If a person says, I'm just emancipating somebody and uh, I have no plan afterwards, then it's not going to work out either. Anyway, I've spoken enough, even though I could talk for another hour here because the weather's really great, but have a good Shabbos in the frozen north. Bye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.